Uh, good morning. We have a lot to get into today, so if you have your Bible, uh, you can grab it. Head over to Colossians chapter 3. That's where we'll be today. But before we dive into the 17 verses that we're going to go over uh, today in Colossians chapter 3, I want to talk to you uh, about an interesting phenomenon that I've observed in ministry over the years. And I'm going to call it the church property phenomenon. The church property phenomenon. And here's what it is. There's something that happens to a lot of people when they drive onto the church property. It's like there's a mystic bubble around the church property and people begin to alter their behavior when they get to church, right? It's this uh, weird phenomenon that happens and it, it, uh, people alter their behavior in many different ways. They accept um, what they accept as normal on other properties, they suddenly uh, don't accept, find unacceptable on the church property. Uh, it's like there's something going on there, some mystic thing going on there when we get to the church property. We just act differently. It's a, it manifests itself in, in many different ways. Like in marriage, spouses will be yelling at each other and mad at each other and hateful in the minivan on the way to church. But when they get to the church property, it's like, gling, everything's fine. We're totally fine. Perfect. No issue whatsoever. Most loving spouse in the world. It happens with language, foul uh, cursing going on at home or in the car ride to church. But when we get out in the parking lot, it's different. And we all know that part of the church property phenomenon, right? That we act differently here, a lot of us, than we do in other places for appearance sake or, or, or for whatever. But there's another part of it that I want to talk to you about today. This phenomenon also affects the expectations we have on other people, right? So what we see here, if if there is talk of the mess of someone's life or if there's language or whatever, what we see here, we're just like, whoa, affronted by this, even though, uh, you know, back home on a different property, we would accept that no problem, and we all have those same issues. And it doesn't only affect our expectations of church people, but the church itself. And this is really where I want to go with this today. Because of this church property phenomenon, people become enraged when the church does certain things, says certain things, has certain expectations of them, even though these same people wouldn't bat an eye at these same things on a different property, at a different place. Let me give you two examples, one to make you mad and one to help us understand the text today. You ready? Here's the one that'll make you mad. Money. People are fine talking about money. Fine talking about spending our money wisely in a God-honoring way. Fine talking about payment and support on other properties. But when they drive onto this property, all of a sudden money's off the table. We don't want to don't talk about money. Right? Even though the Bible itself and Jesus himself talked about money a lot, a lot, a lot. We don't know, but on the church property, we don't want to talk about it. It's the same with time, right? Two to three hours, 
for a movie or a lake outing or a baseball game. No big deal on other properties. But when we get on this property, we get much past an hour, and I'm going to get a few emails, right? That's just the way it is. Oh, I just realized I gave you, I told you I gave you one that made you mad, I gave you two. My bad. My bad. If you're still mad at the end of this message, just email me. Um, my email address is B-I-L-L at greatoaks.church. That's Bill at greatoaks.church. Just email me all of your problems. Um, but here's where this phenomenon has to do with our text today. M- many of us will, will, pra- will accept practical direction, encouragement to change specific behaviors, even confrontation and rebuke, correction on other properties, but not on the church property. Let me give you a couple of examples. You go to the doctor. One of the first things the nurse does on the way back to the exam room is to measure your weight. It's the best part of the visit, right? And their scales are always like at least 30 pounds off, right? And so you go and they measure your weight. And you're like, oh, okay, now I know my weight. Then you go back to the exam room and the doctor looks at the number, looks at you, looks at the number, looks at you. And then he asks you, tell me about your diet. And you go, well, I kind of have a pretty steady diet of donuts and red meat. That's kind of my diet. And I know greens are important, so I only eat the green gummy bears and the green Skittles and the green M&Ms. And, and he goes, okay, all right. And then he says what doctors always say, almost no matter what your problem is. You need to diet and exercise, Right? You need, you, what you need to do is you need to diet and exercise, which, and they act like they just throw that out there like it's no big deal. Diet and exercise, that's the answer, diet and exercise. When I hear that, I hear no joy in my life whatsoever. Just cut out all joy of your life, and you'll be healthy. But then he may say something like, hey, you're, you're like 50 pounds over what you should be, and you need to, you know, you need to fix this. This is, this is a health problem. You need, to, you need to lose some weight, right? You need to lose some weight. And that's not fun to hear. If you've ever heard that from a doctor, that's not fun to hear. But you accept it from your doctor. What you don't do is say, what? How could you judge me like that? You judge not lest you be judged, doctor. I mean, you don't look like you've been cutting back from donuts. I mean, you look like you had a few this morning. You don't say that. You don't go, hey, you can't tell me how to live my life, doctor. You don't do that. No. You accept what he's saying as truth, and then you decide whether you're going to alter your behavior based on that truth or not. It's up to you. But you don't get mad at your doctor for telling you you're overweight when you are, in fact, overweight. As a kid and all the way through high school, I played sports, baseball, football, basketball, track. I went to a small school, so I wasn't any good at it, but I just played these sports. So I've had a lot of coaches over the years. If you're an athlete or a personal, if you, if you have a personal trainer at the gym or whatever, when they say, no, 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 don't do it this way, you need to do it this way. Here, let me correct your form. If you do it this way, it'll hurt you. If you do it this way, it'll work right and work the muscles that we want to 
work. Or when, they, when they're yelling at you while you're running, pick it up, run harder, run, you can do it, finish, you got to run, don't stop, right? When they're yelling that, or when you make a mistake and your coach goes, I told you this before, you've got to do it this way, you need to practice this day in and day out, or we're not going to win the game, you're not going to succeed, whatever it is, when they talk to you like that, it would be crazy for you to answer back, you can't judge me, coach. Right? I mean, it'd be crazy for you to go, you can't tell me, judge not lest you be judged, coach. You can't expect me to, you, know, you can tell me how you think baseball works, but you can't expect me to do things you want me to do in baseball. That's crazy, right? Coach, you have your baseball truth, and I have my baseball truth. And let's just leave it at that. Don't judge me. It'd be crazy. But then we get to church, and this church property phenomenon kicks in. And now we get mad when a preacher tells us something we should do or something we should stop doing based on Scripture. Like the Bible's really clear. Uh, you know, adultery, bad. <laughs> so maybe you shouldn't cheat on your husband or your wife. Maybe you shouldn't live with somebody who you're not married to. You can't judge me. Pastor, that's legalism. Talk to me about what Jesus said about adultery, sure. But don't tell me what to do or don't do. Leave it lofty, right? Leave it unattainable. Talk to me about concepts and ideas, but not behavior. Or I feel so judged because Pastor talked about gossip and slander today. And I gossip and slander. And so I feel judged. I'm feeling this, it's just uncomfortable. Guy, so legalistic. I'm not going back there. It's so legalistic for him to take the scripture and talk to us about living it out. When pastors, churches, preachers try to help us correct our form, be healthy, live out the scriptures, oftentimes we balk at it and call it judgmental or legalistic. It's fine in other places, but not on the church property, right? And there's only two ways that churches can go with this. Pastors, preachers, churches. There's only two ways that you can go with this. One is that you try to lovingly unpack the truth of Scripture to people, to tell them the truth. The truth of Scripture that does, in fact, lead to behavioral change. That does, in fact, lead to priorities being changed. That does, in fact, lead to a life that's lived differently. You try to do that in love, but you also don't compromise the truth. That's one way to go. The other way to go is to begin to just talk about things that make everybody feel good. Right? Cotton candy and rainbows. You come to church and you're just like, oh, I knew I was awesome before I got here. Now I know I'm even awesomer. And I'm going to go home and be just awesome. Everything's going to be great. No need to change. You guys are great. You guys don't need to be conformed into the image of Jesus because you're already there. Good job. Yay. Everybody runs out. Nothing changes in our world or in our lives. It's really the choice between coach and cheerleader. And the problem with that second route, well, <laughs> the problem with the second route is the Bible. Because it's just not written that way. It's not written as a bunch of ideas and concepts that are somehow disconnected 
from behavior, from life, from application. Especially when you read the letters of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. A lot of what the Apostle Paul writes is heady and lofty and kind of transcendent and hard to get our mind around, theological and doctrinal. A lot of what he writes is like that, but he always moves it to practical application. He always gets us into how this applies to our everyday lives. He goes from theology to application, doctrine to practice. And today's text that we're going to get into today is a is a good example of that. The first two chapters of Colossians that's, that we've been plodding through over this summer have been very theological. They've had their own applicable verses, and we've, we've tried to move to application, right? But it's been a lot of theology about the supremacy of Christ, Jesus plus nothing, the shadow and the substance, the glory of God. We, we've talked through those things, and a lot of times we've had to kind of extrapolate how this is going to apply in our lives. And it's been good, it's been right, but today's passage at the beginning of chapter 3 is very direct, very direct. He's, the Apostle Paul is like a coach saying, okay, we've talked about theory. We've talked about why. We've talked about how the game works. We've talked about the players and the positions. Now we're going to go do it. Game time. We're going to go do this thing. Here's how it works in your real life. He gives us in this passage these, these lists. He's saying this is a Christ follower and this over here is not. He's drawing a, a very clear line. I mean, if I walked up to you. And I said what the Apostle Paul is about to say. I said it in my own words. I, I'm thinking at least half of you would answer by going, you are, that's judgmental. That is legalistic. You're drawing lines or we don't need to draw lines. And maybe after today, even though this is staring at you in the face from the Bible itself, maybe you'll be able to say that still. I don't know. I don't know. But if you're going to hear this for what it is and be transformed by it, you'll have to find a way to get past this church property phenomenon. You'll have to kind of get your mind outside of that. The enemy of your soul would love for your pride to swell up, for your self-righteousness to swell up. That part of you that loves your sin so much that you don't want to feel uncomfortable talking about any change in your life. That part of you that would reject anything that would speak of change, make you feel uncomfortable, or God forbid, convict you. Let me show you what I mean in our text. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, as always. It says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above, the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So let's pause there for a second. The Apostle Paul is about to get into some very direct coaching on how we're to live these truths of Scripture that he's already written out, how we're going to do this in a practical way. He's talked about the supremacy of Christ in whom the fullness of God dwells, the shadow and the substance, Jesus plus nothing. Now he's going, okay, this is how we live it out. And he's drawing a line. This is how Christ's followers act. 
But before he does that, he qualifies what he's about to say. This, what he's about to say, is not for everybody. It's not for just anybody. The expectations, it's not for what he's about to get into, the specifics of it, the directness of it. It's not for everybody. Who's it for? He said, if then you have been raised with Christ, if you died to your sin spiritually and you were raised again in Christ, this is for you. In other words, he's going, this is for genuine, all-in Christ followers. So if you're here or you're joining us online and you're not a Christ follower, you haven't yet given your life over to Jesus, you're just checking out, you're not sure where you land on this whole Jesus thing, then this isn't really for you. You you don't have to worry about what we're going to go through, the standards and the expectations. You don't have to worry about it because you have yet to give your life over to Christ and maybe you don't want to. This is for people who have given their lives over to Christ. If you are one of those, then Paul writes, all of this truth we've been talking about, it affects who you are and what you do in your life. It changes the way you live your life. He's going, if this is you, it directly affects how you live, what you do, your priorities, your decisions. Because if this is you, then you'll run after the things that are above, not the things that are below. You won't run after the things that are on earth like money, material, possessions, status, happiness, comfort, acceptance. If this is you, he says, you'll focus on, put your mind on, set your mind on the things that are above. And I don't think he's talking about heaven. I I don't think he's talking about just thinking about heaven and how great it's going to be in heaven and streets of gold and all that. I, I think he's talking about Jesus Christ, who, uh, who is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. In other words, we're not talking about focusing on and running after heaven as much as we're talking about focusing on and running after the king of heaven, the center of heaven, the reason for heaven, Jesus Christ. So Paul goes, if Christ is who I've been saying he is these last two chapters, and if you've accepted him, not as just as Savior, but also as Lord, if you've died and been raised again by him, then you have to choose, he says, to intentionally, purposefully run after the things that are above, which means you'll have to stop running after the things that are on earth, right? It's both. Stop running after the things that are on earth and start running after the things that are above. There's a correction here, like a coach to a player or a doctor to a patient. Not like that. You got to stop that and you have to start this. No more donuts, eat some broccoli. Right? Don't do it that way, you'll blow out a knee. Do it this way so that you build strength and don't hurt your knee. Stop that, start this. But what does it mean to seek and to set our minds on the things that are above? Because that's still kind of lofty, right? And if we left it there, okay, go seek the things that are above. You'd be like, I'm nailing this. Like, seeking the things that are above. This is awesome. I can totally do this. It's just ambiguous and nothing would change, right? Nothing would, would affect your life. But we, we love ambiguity, especially in church. Because then it means we don't actually have to do anything. We just go home, we're like, yeah, I do that. I set my mind on things that are above. I'm good to go. 
not specific. It's ambiguous. We, we love that, but the scriptures don't leave it there. I guess if you stopped here, you might think that, but they get very specific as we go on. Colossians is going to tell us to kill, to take off like dirty clothes, some very specific actions and attitudes that are sinful. And then it's going to say to put on some very specific actions and attitudes that are more Christ-like, more in line with followers of Christ. And it's the taking off, the putting to death of the sinful things that your sinful nature, your pride is going to rise up against and say, judgmentalism, legalism, judge not lest you be judged. I mean, if we're at home reading this passage we're going to get into today, we're skimming through the bad stuff, the stuff we got to stop. And we're jumping to the good stuff. Here's the stuff that I want to be. But we're not dealing with the stuff that we need to let go of, the stuff we need to put to death. But, but listen, beloved, it is very important, very important that we put to death the sinful stuff as we strive to add to our lives the Jesus stuff. You can't do one without the other. It's both. We have to let go of the old to embrace the new. Let go of death to embrace life. We're dropping this over here, and we're picking this up over here. This is the way it works, because these two things are at war against each other. They are diametrically opposed to one another. And, and Jesus said in Matthew that you cannot serve two masters. It won't work. You have to choose which master you're going to serve. You can pretend like you've chosen the Christ-like path that the Apostle Paul is going to line out or lay out for us, but you'll be lying to yourself if you haven't yet, by the power of the Holy Spirit, put off and killed the sinful path that he's going to line out. Are you tracking with me? You've got to do both. You've got to do both. Look at verse 5. Here's the... First of the lists he's going to get into. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So the word for sexual immorality here is the same word that we get the English word pornography from. So just to be clear, this includes any sexual act outside of the marriage bed. Kill it. It does not belong in the life of a Christ follower, period. The next one is impurity. This is wider. It means any immorality in thought, desire, imagination, or action, sexual or otherwise, kill it. It does not belong in the life of a Christ follower, period. Then he says passion. An evil desire. He's talking about passion that is directed in the wrong way. He's talking about unbiblical passion and desire. Passion that is thrown towards something that the Bible is very clear is sinful. Something or someone that we know this is sinful. No matter what your mom says or your friend says or your favorite talk show host says, it doesn't matter. What, but it's, the Bible is saying this thing is sinful, whatever it is. That's, that's what he's talking about with evil evil desire. Kill it. It does not belong in the life of a Christ follower, period. And each of these first four that he goes through, they, they can mean many things. They can be applied in different ways. But 
In this context, they're absolutely talking about sexual immorality above all else, sexual sin above other things. It shouldn't be in the life of a Christ follower at all. Put it to death. Kill it. It may take effort. It may be difficult. It may be uncomfortable. There may even have to be a lifestyle change, a moving of houses, a declaration that your somebody, your friends or whatever, aren't going to a, agree with. It may be difficult, but you have to kill it. If, back to verse 1, you've died to your sin, given your life over to Christ, and been raised again in new life. If you've made this decision and you're following Christ, striving to follow Christ fully with all of you, and getting rid, striving to get rid of all sinful desire so that you can edge closer and closer day by day to Jesus and his image. Listen, you think you can do both. You think you can have this sexual immorality and also follow Jesus. You can't. You can't follow Jesus and indulge in sexual immorality, secret or otherwise. Proverbs 6.27 says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and not get burned? Can a man carry fire next to his chest and not get burned? The answer is no. You can't. I can't. We cannot do that. You can't carry fire next to your chest and not get burned. Kill it. You have to kill this. Then he lists covetousness. This is one we struggle big time in our culture. and It's hard to nail down because you can be full of covetousness and nobody know it. It's in your mind. It's in your own heart. You can be full of it and we not know it. So let me ask you, are, are you covetous? Do you covet? Let me ask it a different way. Do you want something you don't have? That's covetousness. <laughs> I think that's pretty much everybody, right? I mean, me included. Like, covetousness is just wanting something more than you have. More money, bigger house, nicer car, more whatever. It's just wanting more. That's the, that's the idea of covetousness. Particularly, to covet is to want something that someone else has. Everybody deals with this, in our culture at least, and it's serious. Colossians just said it's idolatry. So basically what the Apostle Paul is saying is that when you want something that is not yours, that you don't actually own right now, what you're declaring to the Lord is that that is now my God because I don't trust you. I'm not finding peace or contentment or happiness or joy in what you've given me. I want something more than that. It's just called covetousness, wanting something you don't have, false worship, worship of a false God, it's pretty serious. We have to kill it. It does not belong in the life of a Christ follower, period. Verse 6. He says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Everybody say, the wrath of God. That's an awesome message, right? I mean, you guys are pumped to hear about the wrath of God. Like we put it on Facebook, people show up to hear about the wrath of God. It's a fun message to preach. Not one we talk about in the modern church very often. But what Paul is saying is that the right, just, holy, correct, 
all-consuming wrath of God comes against those, rightfully so, who engage in these sinful activities that he was just talking about. The wrath of God. That might not be fun to hear, but I think, I think if I didn't already, I think I'd want to know this. Wouldn't you? And wouldn't you want to know that the things you're engaged in, the things you're doing, are going to bring the wrath of the creator and sustainer and the most powerful thing ever, like this huge God, the wrath of God on your head? Wouldn't you want to know that? I mean, the news that a tornado is coming and it's going to destroy your house, that's not good news. But it's news you want to hear, isn't it? Why? Why do you want to hear a tornado is coming to get your house if it is going to come destroy your house? Why do you want to hear that news? Okay, you guys failed. I'm going to try over here. So you hear that the tornado is coming. It's bad news. Why do you want to hear that even though it's bad news? To get out of the house, right? To just get out, to save lives, so you don't stay there, so your kids aren't there, so that nobody dies, right? It's the same thing with the wrath of God. It might not be good news, but I want to hear it, and I think you should want to hear it, so you can get out of the house, so you can stop doing whatever brings the wrath of God, so that you can find the grace and mercy that is in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. The wrath of God. Verse 7. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put, put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Listen, some of you have an anger problem. You think, you think you got it under control, but we can see it a mile away. And you're so fun to hang out with. Right? Angry people are really fun to hang out with. You got a problem. You need to deal with it. And, you know, some of you have been angry for so long, it's permanently changed your face. We call you angry face. And we'd love to hang out with you, we really do, but we'd like you to kind of figure this thing out because you've got some anger that you need to deal with. And a lot of times your anger, it, it produces wrath, which in this context with our wrath versus God's wrath, in our wrath we're talking about screaming, yeah, we're talking about a, a three-year-old, tan, a tantrum of a three-year-old, right? That's what we're talking about. Screaming, yelling, throwing things, pounding on the desk like a toddler. Some of you, your anger produces wrath. Others, your anger produces malice, which is just sneaky wrath. It's like ninja wrath. It just means that in the moment you don't explode, but you seethe. For days, weeks, months, maybe even years, you seethe and you get angrier and angrier inside until you start to just pull that dagger out and stab anybody around you. You start to hurt on purpose. You start to destroy lives on purpose because of something they did that made you mad. You say things that slowly and methodically tear them down. You say, well, I'm just blunt. I mean, I just say what I mean. I can't help that other people don't like that. I mean, just have high standards. That's it. I mean, 
I just say what I feel. I speak my mind. This is how I am. No, you've got a problem. Anger, wrath, malice. You've got a problem. Kill it. It does not belong in the life of a Christ follower, period. Slander is next. Slander is talking negatively about somebody to a third party, to another person, even if it's true. Slander is anything that would negatively affect the reputation of another person. That's, that's slander. Anything that would defame another person. Listen, even on Facebook, I mean, we kind of live Facebook like it's totally different, like it's a different life, like it's a different person, like, it, it, like the, the rules, the, the commands of the Bible don't really affect what we write on Facebook, like we've got some kind of, anem, uh, uh, like we've got some kind of, un, what am I saying? Where it's anonymous, I can't say that word. Anonymity, there we go. Like we've got some kind of anonymity, like it's separate from our lives. It's still slander. Listen, slander is even when you talk negatively about a politician in a different political party that you've never met on Facebook. That's called slander. Kill it. It has no place in the life of a Christ follower, period. Let, let, let's pause here. Well, first, let's talk about obscene talk really quick. Foul, abusive, dirty language, things that you wouldn't say if you and I were hanging out probably because I'm a pastor, right? You've got you to act right. Kill it. Doesn't belong in the life of a Christ follower, period. Lying, he talks about. Untruths, half-truths, deception, Fudging the line a little bit so that you look better than you actually do. Exaggerating stories. Lying. Kill it. Doesn't belong in the life of a Christ follower, period. Okay, now let's, let's pause here for a second. How are we doing? Like, isn't this a great message? Like, you were coming out all the way to church. Like, you know what I hope he does? Like, one by one, deal with my sins and call me out. That would be awesome. And he would talk about the wrath of God and just says, like these hearts said, let's talk about that, right? When we read through those lists and we got to a sin that you struggle with or multiple sins, if you're honest with yourself, I mean, did you feel, did you feel your sin nature kind of boil up a little bit? And did you feel that church property phenomenon kind of kick in? Like, hey, that's making me feel uncomfortable. Don't judge me. I'm feeling judged. I'm feeling judged right now. Don't judge me. This is legalism. Judge not lest you be judged, Pastor. Don't forget that this is straight Bible. We're just walking through Colossians 3, 1 through 17. You have to let go of that stuff. You have to pick this stuff up. You have to receive this. Because there's no way to embrace the new if you don't first let go of the old. And to let go of the old... You've got to be okay with God, his word, calling it out in you, right? You've got to be okay with that. It might hurt a little, but you've got to be okay with that. Look at verse 10 with me. Paul said, put those things to death like dirty, stinking gym clothes. Take those things off. Be done with those things. That's the old self. Now he's going to talk about the new self starting in verse 10. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ 
is all and in all. So there it is again, right at the beginning there. You see, this stuff matters. The truth of Christ matters. It's not disconnected from the rest of our lives. It affects everything we do. You accepting the truth of Jesus Christ, it changes everything, or it should. It makes you new. He just said that it's renewing you. You're being renewed, meaning that it didn't happen all at once. When you walked an aisle, you got baptized, you raised a hand, whatever it was. It didn't happen all at once. It happens daily, slowly becoming more like Jesus. It's ongoing. Things are changing. Things are shifting. Sinful attitudes are being exchanged for Christ-like ones. What looked vital before looks ridiculous now. What you used to run after before just looks unnecessary. But all this is tied to what we just went through in these other lists of sinful things. Because the more we put off our old self, the more we open the door to be made new, right? It's both. We put off our old old self to allow God to make us new. And verse 11 is just saying that this new self that's being renewed into the image of Christ, that it tears down racial barriers and religious barriers and cultural barriers and social barriers. He's saying it changes everything. It changes everything. Look at verse 12 with me. Put on then, he's going to get into a list. This time it's of good stuff we should do. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, Meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. If you're a new creation in Christ, this is you. This is what you're striving towards. You make mistakes and you fall short, but this is what people usually see in you. If you've given your life over to Jesus, you're compassionate. But when other people are hurting, your first instinct is not to try to figure out how they got themselves into that and tell them about it. Your first instinct is not to ignore the hurting person because then their problems, you're afraid their problems would become your problems. No. Instead, when you see people hurting, destitute, struggling, you feel hurt for them. And you move to help them because you are compassionate. You're compassionate. If you're a new creation in Christ, you're kind, the scriptures just said. People see that in you from a distance. They're like, man, that guy's just all, that, that lady's just always kind. Always kind. Not, not compromising in the name of kindness, but kind even when speaking the truth. Humility and meekness is listed here. This is, this is not weakness. Being humble is loving others more than you love yourself. Just think about that a second. Humility is loving others more than you love yourself. It, talk about a countercultural message, right? I mean, our, our, our message in our culture is totally opposite of that. It's love yourself first, love yourself most, and then you'll be able to love other people. If you don't love yourself, nobody will be able to love you. Have you ever heard that before? Love yourself first. Put yourself in the center. Love self then you'll be healthy and you'll be able to love other people. The Bible is totally on the other side of that. It says love others more than you love yourself. I'm not saying you should hate yourself. Don't hear what I'm not saying, right? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying humility is loving others more than you love 
yourself. It's the ability to admit when you're wrong. It's honesty about your shortcomings and your struggles instead of acting like everything's perfect. It's humility is reaching out for help when you need it. And meekness, a good way to think about meekness is just strength under control. Meekness just means I'm so secure in what Christ has given me, the giftings and the calling that he's given me, that I don't have to be out in front proving that I'm awesome. I don't have to be out there. Meekness says I'm strong and secure in what God has given me already. Meekness, strength under control. If you're a new creation in Christ, this is you. You're patient. You can wait. In your relationships, you bear with people. You don't expect people to figure things out right now. You can wait for what you desire. You don't need it right now. When you're driving on the highway and you're in the left lane and somebody's going 10 miles under the speed limit and you get your car right up to their bumper and you go, get out of the way, Grandma, you probably have a patience problem. You're probably dealing with, you need patience. You don't have, you don't have patience. And you get out in front of grandma and you got that Jesus sticker on the back of your car. You are knocking this out of the park. Listen to this one. If you're a new creation in Christ, when there's a problem with someone, you forgive. Forgive. When they hurt you, betray you, walk all over you, neglect you, ignore you, do something you disagree with. You forgive. Listen, not because they deserve it. No. He says you forgive because of what Christ forgave you of. For you see, forgiveness has nothing to do with what they did to you and everything to do with what Christ did for you. You see the difference? We should have a deep well of forgiveness to hand out to others, and that well of forgiveness is what Christ did for us on the cross. If you're a new creation in Christ, this is you. This is you. And then he writes in verse 14, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So this is all about love. And love brings us all together. Love for God, sure, but he's talking about love for other people. Your love for other people will bind this all together. Your motive has to be love when you're trying to live out the new self. Your motive has to be love for this to work. And so Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he draws this line. He's taken the truth of Christ from chapters 1 and 2, and now he's going, okay, this is the specifics. This is how you live this out in your life. He's written these lists that work like a mirror, showing us who we truly are. And whether or not that's lining up with what a Christ follower should be. And then he kind of wraps things up in the next three verses. And in doing so, he, he gives us this hope. He, he pushes us towards this idea that, that, that we can't possibly do this on our own. That we need Jesus Christ. That we have the power. If we've given our lives over to Jesus, we have the power of Christ at work in us. And he, he talks about the supernatural peace of God the supernatural word of Christ and the supernatural name of Jesus Christ. And then he's going to kind of just toss out on a, on a side note um, another key to this whole living the new self thing. You can try to figure out if you 
you got to figure out what that key is before I get there, because I'm going to ask you, and you're going to totally know it, because you guys are geniuses. All right, verse 15, read it with me, or read along with me. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So after reading those first first 14 verses before we got to verse 15, maybe you're feeling a little anxious, right? Like, ah, I got a lot of old self and not much new self. I'm losing on both sides, right? Maybe you're anxious. How am I going to possibly pull this off? I'm getting worried. Well, the Apostle Paul then in verse 15 goes, peace. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The peace of Christ is different than other kinds of peace. It's not the absence of trouble. It's joy in the midst of trouble. It's not contingent on circumstances. It's steady, supernatural, solid, always there. And he says, let it rule. In other words, you're worried about figuring this out. He's going, let the peace of God in your heart tell you if something is right or wrong. Let the peace of God rule. In other words, let the peace of God be the umpire of your life. When you come up to something, let the peace of God call foul or tell you in your heart that you're safe. You're in a safe zone. Thoughts, emotions, decisions, everything. Let the peace of God rule in your heart. And not just the peace of Christ, but the word of Christ too. Let it dwell inside you. Get get the word in you. He goes richly. In other words, a lot. Get a lot of the word in you. Saturate yourself with the word of Christ. Write it down, put it on a wall, put it on your mirror, memorize it, read it, listen to it, teach it to others, get it in your mind. Pray God that God would help you understand it. And he says, also use it to admonish others. That means you're supposed to use the word of Christ to lovingly warn, correct, and even rebuke. Always in love. Always with the motive of love. If you do all that, God will help you put to death the old self and bring to life the new self. And that new self will look a lot like Jesus. The supernatural peace of God, the supernatural word of God, and whatever you do in word or deed, do it in the name of Jesus. Do it in the name of Jesus of Jesus. In other words, Paul says, you are not alone in this. As you try to live out the new self and put to death the old self, you're not alone. You're not trying to do this on your own. You have the power and the strength of Christ at work in you. You have the name of Jesus behind you. You're not alone. If, back to verse 1, you've been raised with Christ, If this is you, if you've made your decision, if you've accepted Jesus as supreme, as the Lord, as king, as the substance over the shadow, then then all that we've been talking about, putting the old self to death and embracing the new self, as hard as it may sound, is not impossible. Not at all. 
because of the supernatural peace word and name of Jesus Christ. I said that he was going to throw out one last key to us in the last three verses. Did you notice something being repeated there in those last three verses? Okay, if you didn't, because you were also listening to me while trying to figure that out, so I don't know what I expected, right? It's thankfulness. In each of the three verses, the last three verses, he says, be thankful, be thankful. Have thankfulness in your hearts. Give thanks to God. And to be thankful, you have to remember, right? That's what thankfulness is, remembering the good, even when we're in times of difficulty. That's, that's what it means to be thankful. So one of the keys to this whole thing, this whole living out the new self and crucifying or putting to death the old self, is remembering what Christ has already done for us. As we're slowly being conformed into the image of Christ one day at a time, as we're slowly putting to death sinful desires and sinful actions and sinful attitudes, and we're, we're moving towards Jesus, and it's slow, and it's not going as fast as we want, and it's difficult, and a Christian friend or the Bible itself calls us out on a sin that we are totally involved in in our lives, that it is not befitting of a Christ follower, and it's right, but it stings. In the middle of all of this, we give thanks to God. We remember, the key is remembering the life-transforming work of Christ on the cross. The love in his eyes. The proof that we can trust him. That he has a plan and it's good. That he's going to finish this work in us even if it seems like it's never going to end. Thankfulness. So as it oftentimes happens, today the scriptures have, like a mirror, not only shown us the the uncompromising truth of the gospel, but shown us where we don't quite measure up. And sometimes that's not fun, right? It's like the doctor who says you're 50 pounds overweight. Or the coach who says, you got to change what you're doing or we're not going to win. It's difficult. It's not fun. But this part of the church property phenomenon that gives us the idea that church is not the place where sin should be called out, where conviction should happen, where we should be spurred on towards change. It's this idea that belief and, and behavior are disconnected, it's, it's foolish. Dangerous and absolutely a tool of our enemy. Like a good coach, the Lord has today, in a very clear way, gone from theory to practice, from theology to how we actually live this out in our lives. And listen, you could get mad because you're not measuring up. You could ignore it because it feels uncomfortable and you don't want to deal with it. But I wouldn't recommend that. Instead, why don't you sit with these 17 verses this week? Be honest about where, you're, where you are. Be honest with yourself and with God. And then ask 
Let Jesus make you new. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word that is so clear and always puts us, pushes us towards you. Always teaches us how to become more like you. As always, Lord, I pray today that whatever is of you would stick with us and haunt us and stay with us and be remembered tomorrow and the next day and every day. And whatever is of me or of man would just fall to the wayside and be forgotten. We love you, Jesus. We need help with this. We're out of our element. We can't do it. We need, Holy Spirit, your help in being more like Jesus. So we ask, God, for your peace to reign supreme in our hearts, for your word to saturate our minds, and God, for your name to fill us with confidence as we step out and try to kill the old self and let the new self rise to life. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Why don't you stand with me? Here's my uh, prayer for you today. May you learn to welcome truth, the truth, warnings, and even the stinging rebukes of Scripture. May you run after the things that are above instead of the things that are on earth. And may the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, and the name of Christ make you new today. God bless you. Thank you so much for coming today. Make sure you talk this over with your life group this week. If you're not in a life group, stop at Connection Central and get plugged into one. And as always, my encouragement, my challenge to you is to not let this stop with you, but to open the scriptures with somebody you love, a friend, a co-worker, a family member this week. Talk about Colossians 3, be a Jesus follower who makes and disciples other Jesus followers. We've got prayer team on the side. We'd love for you to stay for one last song. If you need to go, you can sneak out.